All right, let's take the Word of God together tonight and go to our text for this evening, which is Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1, as we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians. And tonight we're going to be dealing with verse number 5 primarily, although we do want to begin by reading verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians chapter number 1. And some of this will be a review from Sunday as we're kind of building on each one of these expressions. There in Ephesians 1 verse 5, the Bible says, "...having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved." We want to deal with the subject tonight of that word that's found in verse number 5, and that is the word adoption. Adoption. Specifically, the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. Now, all of us tonight, I think, would be in full agreement that God is the Creator of every person who is living, has ever lived, and will live. However, God being the Creator does not mean that every created person is in the family of God. It would be false doctrine to say that just because I was created by God that I am in the family of God. It would be even more false to say that I am a child of God or I am a son and a daughter of God if that was in fact not the case. Now, why is this important? It's important because late in the 19th century and even early in the 20th century, an idea began to infiltrate churches. And it was the idea of liberal theology or liberalism. Now, we're all familiar with that. We're familiar with it even in our day and age and idea of liberal thinking. Well, liberal theology is an extremely dangerous uh, theology that gets into churches. Well, what that liberalism theology emphasized was this idea of universal fatherhood. In other words, the idea was, was that ultimately everybody is the son or the daughter of God. He is everyone's father. On the same token, if there is a universal fatherhood, then there must be an also a universal brotherhood. Which means if God is everybody's father, then that means everybody, regardless of who they are, are all brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem with that is, is that's not biblically based. That's not based on biblical truth. That false teaching would completely disregard what the gospel calls sinners to. Sinners are called to repentance. If everybody is the son and daughter of God, then there would be absolutely no need to even call people to repentance, nor would there be a need to even call people's attention to sin. Because ultimately, if God is everyone's father, then repentance doesn't matter. Then confrontation of sin doesn't matter. All that matters is that we're all in the family of God. Now that is a deep theological error that came in the late 19th century, still is in the 20th century, and it is still permeating our churches today. This is not a dead thought. This is not a dead doctrine. Uh, there are many, many churches 
that they will, they will even tell people when, when someone comes into the church for the first time, they will refer to them as brothers and sisters in God. I can't refer to any other person as a brother and sister in God unless that person truly is in Jesus Christ. Now, it sounds like a good idea on its humanistic side. It sounds like a good idea that everybody is God's child. But that's just not at all what the Bible teaches. Now, along that same line, a doctrinal error sprung off of that idea. And that idea was, was that there are people who also decided that throughout Scripture, we had to distinguish between the sons of God and the children of God. So when you see in Scripture, you see the sons of God, you see the children of God, they say there's a distinction that must be made between those two. One particular group, the children of God, or the sons of God, one of the two groups gets greater benefits than the other. So the first one there, the sons of God, it's told by these false theologians that the, the first ones, the sons of God, they enjoy a greater fellowship with God than the children of God. In other words, what you really want to be is the son of God, not just the children of God. Now that's part of their false theology. I'm just pointing us out to call our attention to how false that is. Because if that was true, then we still are honestly seeing the reality that that would, would undo any need for gospel repentance. So why is it important for us to understand these theological terms that Paul talks about? Why is it so important to understand that the word adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, why is it important to know that even that phrase itself completely it dissolves the idea of this universal fatherhood or this universal brotherhood? The key word is the word adoption. It's, it's just as important of a word as the word predestinated is. It's just as important of a word as holy and without blame. It's just as important as a word as the word chosen there in verse number four. This adoption or this idea of adoption is the very, it's the very linchpin of what makes a person the child or the son of God. Now, we know at our church, we are continually reminding one another of how important sound doctrine is. We make a great emphasis on doctrine because we know that doctrine to be twisted and perverted only takes a change of a word or two. If I change the definition of a word, I can create an entire false doctrine from that one change in meaning. So when we talk about errors, we have a responsibility, first of all, to respond to error. But I think even more importantly, and I think what Paul is teaching us here, is we need to see that there is a great privilege that we have in Jesus Christ because of this doctrine of adoption. Now we could spend all of our time trying to undo errors all around us. And I suppose there might be some value to that to a point. Now, I would say this, we have to guard our church against error like that getting in. Every church needs to guard against error getting in. But you and I are not going to be able to undo every error in the world. 
But we do need to guard against the doctrine that we sing about, the doctrine that we preach about, the doctrine that we talk about. So, but we need to also understand that instead of focusing on the error, we need to focus on the, the privilege that we have of being in Christ. We know from our study of the confession and we know from the study of, of Christ as mediator and, and studying a little bit about the fall of man, we realize that because of Adam's sin and because he was the representative of all humankind, we realize that because of his sin, we also fell in Adam. And in that fall, we also experienced a great loss. But on the other hand, in Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, he undoes everything that Adam failed in. It's the only way that a person can be brought into the family of God. The word adoption on its very, on its very surface suggests to bring into a family. Adoption in our world means it's the adoption of a child or children. You take that child into your home as your own. You raise that child as your own. And I would submit to you, it is your child. It's not, it's not an adopted child. This is just the way I feel about it. This is your child. You adopted and took that child as your own. Now, some people feel differently about that, but I don't call them adopted children. I say, that's my child. Because there's a beauty in that. Well, when God adopts us into his family, he's taking full ownership of us. He's not just saying, okay, I'm, I'm taking you in on a, on, a, on a probationary period to see how well you do and see if I want you to stay around. And I don't mean to be irreverent by that, but you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's not a tryout period. It's an adopted into the family of God and it is forever. But because of that adoption, we've been given so much more than what we actually lost in Adam. The privilege of redemption, the privilege of adoption, of election, of predestination, all these large theological uh, terms includes one great truth, the forgiveness of sins. So even on the sense to be able to be adopted into the family of God, my sins must be forgiven. That totally undoes what the universal fatherhood crowd would say or the universal brotherhood crowd would say because if there's no forgiveness of sins there is no adoption in the family of God but not only have our sins been forgiven but we've also been exalted to a place of what the bible refers to as sonship sonship is something that really on its surface is just it's a beautiful term because I am considered a son or a daughter of God. Not on a probationary period, but on a permanent, eternal basis. And we've been studying this verse now, verse number five, and we've looked at the word predestination. We spent two services just dealing with the phrase of the word predestinated. So I'm not going to do a lot of review on that tonight, but we, we need to understand that predestination reaches to the people, the lives, and the circumstances of men, to every mercy, whether it's a temporal mercy or a spiritual mercy, to all afflictions, to all sicknesses, whether it's in love or whether it's in wrath. The predestination of God also is seen in the providence of God. How God deals with man 
is nothing more than God executing His predestination. So when God's providential hand begins to move pieces in place and begins to call people unto Himself, those are the divine hands of God that are moving in order for His will and His purpose, and as we learned on Sunday, according to the good pleasure of His will. So just like we said Sunday, if I am in the family of God, it's because it's according to the purpose of His will, not because of any merit or worth on my own, but because it's the good pleasure of His will, which is astounding to me, because how could I be a part of God's good pleasure knowing my own sinful self? How could God, and remember, we said Sunday as well, God doesn't even find a cause in and of Himself as to why He calls us unto Himself. We dealt with that very high subject Sunday about trying to figure out why would God choose sinful people? And you can try and try and try. You'll never find a reason in you, but you will find that the only reason he calls people to himself is to glorify himself. Every sinner that's saved is all glory goes to God. So adoption, as with election and predestination, concerns the same people. In other words, those who are adopted to the family of God are the same people who were part of the election and predestination or the choice of God. So in other words, you don't have two lines running here. You don't have the, those elected and predestined on this side and then the adopted children over here. If you are the adopted child of God, it's the same people. You're all, that's all one group of people. They're not two separate things. But that adoption has this, this very special blessing that comes with it. Now, not in the sense of, of, of the, the foolishness of the prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about special blessings like that. I'm not talking about uh, we, we're, you know, the whole idea that you know, send me $1,000 and, and you'll get $10,000. i am not talking about that kind of special blessing. I'm talking about the blessing of being called the sons and daughters of God. That in and of itself is a blessing. That's the result of adoption. Because even in its truest and purest sense, even though being part of that elect or being part of that choice, it is the adoption that really gives us the idea and the understanding of the special blessing of God that's upon us. Notice he says, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. The adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. What's meant by this is there, there is the grace of adoption. Grace, of course, is an act of the Father's love. We know grace is unmerited favor. Grace has nothing to do with our worthiness. It has nothing to do with our potential. It has nothing to do with what we think, uh, what we think about ourselves. It all has to do according to the good purpose and pleasure of God. But in the act of grace, there is this blessing that's provided and has been secured in that covenant of grace to people who deserve and have no right to it, become heirs to an inheritance. They have no legal right to the inheritance, but because of God's good pleasure, they now become heirs. It's, again, if you try to use earthly examples, sometimes the earthly examples fall miserably short. But if you think about a person financially gaining an inheritance, they get a letter in the mail or they get some kind of communication and it's from a total stranger 
And this total stranger somehow, someway, in their will had said, upon my death, I want all of my resources to pass to this person. They're not legally bound to them in any way, shape, or form. They're not a child. They're not a spouse. There's no legal boundary to it. But the person giving that inheritance is giving it to somebody who has no legal right to claim it. Think that makes sense? It's kind of like you get it and you're like, who is this and why am I getting it? Well, we as believers, we don't, we're not entitled, we don't have a legal right to the blessing of adoption. We don't have the merited grounds of ourselves to stand and say, I'm entitled to inherit God's adopting favor. Again, this all points back to the reality that this is an act of free grace on God's behalf. It's entirely free. There's no need on the adopter's part to pay anything else. And there's no worth on the person who's being adopted. The inheritance that they are adopted to exceeds every other adoption and is incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it never fades away. But that inheritance only belongs to the children of God. Now again, if we were to believe in universal fatherhood and universal brotherhood, we would be left with the conclusion that that must mean that all people are adopted into God's family. And that just cannot be the case. So in adoption, they are predestinated unto God, by the, uh, unto God who takes them into His family, puts them among His children, and gives them an inheritance. But notice, it is by Jesus Christ. Okay, it's by Jesus Christ. Or we might say it's through Him. When Paul uses that expression, by Jesus Christ, he is emphatically showing us through the Holy Spirit that it is by and only through Jesus Christ that this inheritance comes through. Because God... In His grace and this grace of adoption, everything comes through His Son. It's interesting that we are called the sons of God, the children of God, and Jesus Christ Himself holds the title of being the Son of God. Now, doesn't, we're not gods like Him, of course, but that idea of being the Son of God. Now, one of the best passages to kind of illustrate this a little bit further is found in Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 12. And I want to read that down just a little bit here because Paul, as he was writing to the church at Rome, deals with the doctrine of adoption. And of course, he's writing in the context, and this is important, of being led by the Spirit. We know the Spirit is the evidence that we are in Christ, that we're in the family of God. If a person does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, they are not converted, they're not saved, they're not part of the family of God. The Holy Spirit is evidence. But look what Paul says. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, here's the declaration, they are the sons of God. 
There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. He said, if you're led by the Spirit, then you are the Son of God. Now remember, sonship indicates adoption, right? I can only be declared a Son of God by adoption. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with our, in ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But we... But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. The Apostle Paul, as he was writing here, was not just writing about some superficial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He was speaking specifically about the way of holiness or the way of right walk and right living that occurs due to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think part of this is because it would be very easy for people to say the same thing they say when they struggle with the doctrine of election. They say, if I'm elected, then I can live however I want. Now, we know that's not biblically, that's not biblically right. As a matter of fact, that, that completely puts away that idea. So Paul, even in the same sense, is saying, listen, this adoption of the family of God is going to come with certain characteristics. There's going to be a way in which you walk. He says it right off the top by saying, you're going to be led by the Spirit. And we know to be led by the Spirit is to be led in the right way. The language here of the lean of the Spirit is an indication as the mark of God's sons. In other words, if I'm being led of the Spirit, that is a mark that I am in fact the Son of God. If I'm not led of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is very clear about this, then I am not of the family of God. So we understand here, as Paul writes in this particular portion, he continues to show us that this language of leading is the idea of being led by a father or being led uh, in, by the Spirit. Notice he uses the phrase, a spirit of adoption. So in, a, in addition to our justification, our conversion... The spirit of adoption is to literally be taken into the family of God. And in order for us to know that for sure, we're persuaded by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what persuades us. That's what the Bible said. He said, right, he, he clearly said the spirit itself in verse 16 of Romans 8, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
That's how I know. That's how I know that I'm a recipient of this adoption. Now, he also says that there's a very clear uh, response. Back in verse 15, he says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, that phrase, Abba, Father, that's the cry of a believer. All right, now what I mean by that and what Paul means by that, only the believer is entitled to use those words. It would be highly inappropriate and useless for an unbeliever to call on God as Abba Father. Why? Because according to the spirit of adoption, because of the adoption of, doctrine of adoption, they are not part of the family of God. So why would someone not part of the family of God call on a God that they do not know? That's why this adoption is so important. That's why Paul spent the time in Ephesians, and he's also talking about it here with the church at Rome, because there's the same idea going here that there are indications as to whether or not you are, in fact, a child of God or not. Abba, Father is the expression that Jesus himself used when he was addressing God in prayer. So when Jesus would pray, he would use the expression, Abba, Father. Now, what was he declaring? He was declaring his own sonship. Jesus, by praying that way, is not just showing us an example. He is declaring sonship. And if we're in Christ, we have sonship. Not because of our worth, but because of Jesus Christ. And when Christ calls upon the Father, we as His children, as His sons, we are able to also call upon the Father and respond to Him with the same expression, Abba, Father. The cry of Abba Father is a cry or an expression of an assurance. And what I mean by that is you should never cry out to God as Abba Father unless you're 100% sure that He's your Father. Now that sounds profound, but that's the truth. How are you going to know that He's your Father? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness in you that you are His child. You say, I, I thought the preacher had to tell me I was a child of God. The preacher should never tell you whether or not you're a child of God or not. That's not the preacher's responsibility. No preacher should tell you you are, in the, you are in the family of God. You should look at them and say, what does the Bible say that you can know that you're in the family of God or not? The Holy Spirit bears witness within you that you are a child of God. Every believer knows that they're in Christ because the Holy Spirit gives them the assurance that they are. My assurance is not because I prayed. My assurance isn't because I got baptized. My assurance isn't because I'm a church member. My assurance is because the Holy Spirit bears witness that I am in God. So these, these concepts, these are big concepts. Now it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the word adoption doesn't appear in the Old Testament legal system. You don't see it being played out in the Old Testament. Although what you do see is you do see the concept of Israel being treated as a son. But it's not in the same legal standing. Now that's, that's for another day. But Paul, when he wrote to the church at Rome, seems to have taken this concept from the Roman law. And he took that and he built it out with this biblical theology of God's fatherhood. 
So Paul, when he wrote this in Romans, and God was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had adoption in mind and fatherhood of God and sonship. Oftentimes we read these passages and, and like Romans and we don't look at the real detail of what's going on here. We just simply say, yeah, be led by the Spirit. I cry out the Father when I pray. And I've heard it said, and I've probably been guilty of this many, many times. I saw the expression Abba Father. It was always explained to me that that just means you can call God like your daddy. You can just say, dear daddy. That's just not, that's not truly the intended meaning. Now, humanly speaking, it sounds, it sounds comforting. It sounds warm. It sounds a little fuzzy. It sounds, a little, but it sounds so nice. Abba Father is a declaration of sonship. It's a declaration that I have a legal right to ask you because I'm in Christ. That is a very important piece. Universal fatherhood would suggest, that false doctrine would say that everybody has a right to call on God. You don't have a right to call on God unless you're his son. Or if you're calling out in repentance to be converted. I hope, I hope that's... At least we're getting the idea here of what's happening. So just as all these children in a human family are heirs of the father along with the oldest brother. We know the concepts in scripture about the oldest brother was the one that was entitled to the inheritance. Believers are God's heirs in and with Christ. Now the reception of that inheritance comes to us in Christ. Notice Paul says something very important. He says there in verse 17 of Romans 8, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, most people stop there and they say, what a beautiful thing. I've got an inheritance coming. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says part of your inheritance, part of your sonship, here's the popular message of the day that will not fill churches. If so, be that we suffer with him. Oh, wait a minute. My sonship? And God as my Father is going to require suffering? Yes. We suffer with Him. That we may be also glorified together. And that's what Paul, it leads him into a, an anticipation of glory. From verses 15 down through 27, Paul becomes filled with the anticipation of what's coming. And that's why he uses that word. He said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Paul declares right there his own sonship by saying, I'm suffering. I'm a son of God. But I will tell you this, that the sufferings I'm going through now are going to be nothing when compared to what awaits me. Because see, our full adoption will not be seen and fully understood until we are taken to glory with him. Then our full adoption benefits will be seen. The interesting part is our adoption, the inheritance, we've just got a down payment. The down payment is the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what he says there. The inheritance that we have is the Spirit of God that declares that you are, in fact, a child of God. So the glory to be revealed will appear as the sons of God are revealed. The creation will be liberated from its present state of sin and decay and corruption. And the revelation of God's glory, when it comes, will more than wipe out every bit of suffering that we ever saw on this side. 
I mean, folks, the, the things we're suffering now, the things you're suffering, suffering personally, I know it seems like this is, this is just awful. It's never... Listen, there's coming a day when all suffering will be ended, when there will be no more corruption, there will be no more sin, there will be no more things that are contrary to God. And your sonship, my sonship, is going to be more glory, gloriously seen than any we could even put into words today. But suffering should not surprise us as a child of God. Jesus himself said, you will suffer. But you remember, you're adopted into my family. You're adopted into my family. This present condition of creation is not the final, it's not the final scene. There's much more coming. Our salvation has begun. We have the Holy Spirit as that down payment. 2 Corinthians 1.22 and Ephesians 1.13 tell us that. But it will finally and ultimately be completed at the resurrection. Our full realization of adoption in Christ will come when Jesus Christ comes again. That's one of the many reasons I'm so excited about Jesus Christ coming again. I'm not excited about superficial things like we hear people say, I can't wait to get my mansion in heaven. Folks, I'm not even concerned about that. That doesn't mean anything to me. And I think we've overblown that in most of our churches through the years. The reality is, is we're talking about this inheritance of being called the children of God. So God has given us this power and this privilege to openly declare that we are in fact the sons of God. That phrase, unto Himself, back in our text, refers not only to unto, him, unto God the Father who has chosen and set apart, formed us, and reserved His people, but it's also unto Jesus Christ. That's why Christ often said, I and my Father are one. It's impossible to have God as my Father and to not be in Christ. If I have Christ, I have the Father. If I have the Father, I have the Son. If I have the Father and the Son, then I have the Spirit. There is no such thing as a non-triune God. There is no just God the Father and Jesus. And folks, I'm telling you this because there are a lot of churches, we make a lot about Jesus here and we do it unapologetically. But I always try to make sure we understand that it's not just Jesus. Because if it's not God the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus just becomes one figure, but He's not part of the whole anymore. Now you'd be surprised. There's a lot of churches that say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. But they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in God the Father. And they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They believe that those are, those, that's not really God. Those are just influences. Those are just persuasive forces. Then I would tell them, and I would suggest to you, those are non-converted churches. And you say, that's harsh. Now, I don't know man's heart. That's why I don't get into the business of someone says, do you think I'm saved? I don't even go down a line of asking them. My testimony now, when somebody says about my own, my own testimony, it's like Christ saved me. It's not about what I did. My testimony used to be what I did. Someone would say, do you know God? And I would go down the list of all the things I did. Here's what proves I'm in Christ. The problem is that's not what Paul talks about. That's not what the Bible talks about. 
It talks about the greatest evidence and the evidence that you know you're a child of God is what you do with Christ, obviously. But does the Holy Spirit bear witness that you are, in fact, a child of God? It's interesting when we talk about this and we think about being part of the family of God. And we think about to have that spirit that it reminds us of what, what more beautiful thing can there be than for us to be able to call upon God as our Father. This idea of this universal fatherhood of God is a doctrine of the flesh, not of the spirit. Nowhere in the Bible is it taught about the doctrine of universal fatherhood. We are born into the family of God by the new birth and we are brought into God by an act of divine grace through adoption. And again, all this is dependent upon the good pleasure of God's will. The will of God is the rule of all of His actions, all of His acts of grace, all of His goodness, his good pleasure, according to the verse, appears to show us that predestination of man is the will of God. Paul nowhere indicates that God's predestination or choice or adoption of us is based upon man's foreseen faith, his good works. All of those things are excluded from this. There's nowhere in Scripture that you see good works saving a person or making a person worthy of God's saving. Works are the result of what's taken place. Works are not saving. Works are fruit. They're evidence. So what do we say? After the election, we know that there is an adoption. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, men are not by nature the children of God, but they are heirs of wrath. And this is very clear because a man never adopts his own children. But adoption in itself proves that by nature we are not the children of God, but He adopts us. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Then are ye begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Happy they who know their adoption, who feel in themselves the spirit of children and can cry, Abba, Father. As they look up to God tonight, this is in Christ Jesus. For nothing comes to us except by Him. I like that quote because that kind of encapsulates everything we just talked about tonight. So we deal and have dealt with tonight with the doctrine of adoption. Lord willing, Sunday morning, we'll deal with the phrase found in verse number 6, being accepted in the beloved. It's very similar, but there are different ramifications and consequences as a result of that as well. All right, let's go ahead and we'll finish with our reading from the Valley of Vision and then we'll have our closing hymn and we'll be on our way. Uh, this is on page 332, uh, chapter number eight. It's entitled, Love Rest in God. It says, My dear Lord, I depend wholly upon Thee. Wean me from all other dependences. Thou art my all. Thou dost overrule all and delight in me. Thou art the foundation of goodness. How can I distrust thee? How be anxious about what happens to me? In the light of thy preciousness, the world and all its enjoyments are infinitely poor. I value the favor of men no more than pebbles. Amid the blessings I receive from thee, may I never lose the heart of a stranger. 
May I love Thee, my benefactor, and all my benefits, not forgetting that my greatest danger arises from my advantages. Produce in me self-despair that will make Jesus precious to me, delightful in all His offices, pleasurable in all His ways, and may I love His commands as well as His promises. Help me to discern between true and false love, the one consisting of supreme love to Thee, the other not. The former uniting Thy glory and man's happiness that they may become one common interest, the latter disjointing and separating from both, seeking the latter with neglect of the former. Teach me that genuine love is different in kind from that wrought by rational arguments or the motive of self-interest, that such love is a pleasing passion affording joy to the mind where it is. Grant me grace to distinguish between the genuine and the false, and to rest in thee who art all love.